welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. On this episode of Declarations, we had a discussion with environmental activists regarding human rights and the international movement for fossil fuel divestment. I was joined in our recording studio by Chris Galpin and Emma Bryan, two members of the Cambridge Zero Carbon Society, and Karis Goodwin, who's done past work with the Green Party in New Zealand and is conducting environmental research here at Cambridge. And finally, our regular Center of Governance and Human Rights panelist, Max Curtis. I'd like to start off by asking the panel, what do you view the link between human rights and climate change as being? Karis, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so I think the best way to conceptualize climate change is as a filter or a way to exacerbate all of the issues we see in the world at the moment. Issues like access to water, um, long-running issues of colonialism, racism, feminism, they all intersect and engage with climate change in different capacities. So the way human rights and climate change intersects is very much embedded within the inequalities that climate change draws out in the international system. So we look at the fact that the biggest polluters are the richest countries and we look at the way the some of the least developed and developing countries are the ones who are going to be affected the most by climate change. The Pacific is sinking, you know, whole swaths of Africa are going to be without water. Certainly. And we've seen that with how it's argued that climate change has exacerbated the refugee crisis that we're seeing and there's only going to be more refugee crises in the future. And what always should be going through your head is how does this engage with the inequalities that we already see in the international system? So while climate change in itself, often people can draw it out and say, no, 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 it's just about the environment. It's not because people live in the environment and people interact with the environment. And all of these global issues that we see affecting human rights all around the world will be affected by climate change. Well, Karis, um, I know that you've done a lot of work outside of um, a university setting as well. You've actually been to Marrakesh recently, haven't you? Yeah, so um, I just went to the first week of the International Climate Conference, COP22, which takes place every year, and um, for most people you'd be familiar with Paris, the Paris Climate Conference. So Marrakesh was the next step. It was a very weird experience, to say the least, The international climate system is riddled with tensions and hypocrisies. So there's a movement called 300 Kilometers South, which is about a community uh, in Madeira that has pretty much has the same issues as Standing Rock, but because it's, you know, in a non-Western country, who pays attention, right? Uh, (laughs) But basically the protesters from this movement weren't even allowed into the conference because the company that is uh, trying to extract or in their community is sponsoring the conference. And it's like these sorts of stupid issues uh, mean that we're still really struggling to, even on the international scale, where we're supposed to have this global system of like working towards solving climate change, it's still infected with all the inequalities that undermine its, mm-hmm. you know, the very process. I I would agree with you in terms of the international community. It's been a real challenge to get states to take these issues seriously. And that brings us, I think that's a good segue into what we're here to talk about today is what are mechanisms for getting our governments 
and the world to take the issue of climate change more seriously than they are now. And one method that is relatively new, but is being advocated for by many, many different institutions or in student groups at universities, and that is the mechanism of fossil fuel divestment. And since we have Chris and Emma, who are working on Cambridge's fossil fuel divestment campaign, I'd like to start off by asking you, what what is fossil fuel divestment and why do you see it as a potentially effective mechanism for getting the world to address some of these climate issues? So fossil fuel divestment is the withdrawing of uh, an institution's uh, assets from fossil fuel companies, their investments, both those that are direct and also those in fund managers. It's about a symbolic action that removes the like social license of these companies to operate. So it doesn't actually affect the finances of fossil fuel companies directly. It's not going to like plunge them into uh, like disarray, but um, it's going to send like a powerful signal to business and political leaders that um, investment in these companies isn't viable in the future because the motives of these companies completely undermine the um, concepts of like social justice and uh, climate justice that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah, for me, it's very much a case of uh, asking the university to put its money where its mouth is because we do so much research, which demonstrates not only that, you know, climate change is happening, but also the damage that it's going to do and the very real suffering that that's going to cause. As, as well as just condemning that with words, we can also actually do something that shows that we do care. And I think divestment has actually been very successful so far, not only in kind of encouraging people to take moral responsibility when it comes to investments, but also in how it's raised awareness of the very real financial risks associated with fossil fuel investments. You know, if and hopefully when we do take effective action on climate change, that's going to be really financially damaging to a lot of these fossil fuel companies who are carrying on as if everything's going to carry on as it is now and nothing's going to change. Um, and hopefully things will change. It's about whether the university wants to be seen as a leader or be left behind and keep their investments in, in these companies as they, as they go into decline. And also the, the fact of the matter is that we need to leave 80% of fossil fuel reserves in the ground if we want to avoid uh, 1.5 degrees of warming or some estimates are even more than that. Certainly. And this movement has really taken off within the past four years. I'm on GoFossilFree.org right now. And according to them, approximately $3.4 trillion have been divested so far that institutions have committed to divesting. And that's 641 institutions they have as divesting in some manner. And over 50,000 individuals have divested about $5.2 billion from these companies. So there's signs that this movement's taking off. Um, but I want to go back to something that you said that there's an economic argument for divesting. So you've articulated the moral argument that you, we have to keep these fossil fuels in the ground. We cannot continue burning them at the rate that we're burning them because otherwise that is already causing massive destruction for millions of people. But what's the economic argument for fossil fuel divestment? You know, I, I would hope if the moral argument is strong enough, then, you know, that that really should be a defining feature for us. But as far as the financial case, fossil fuel companies haven't been prepared for the changes in the world's energy system that have taken place. So for instance, they weren't really expecting this kind of progress to a world of lower energy prices, which we're seeing as you know renewables constantly reduce in price. 
that means lower energy prices for everyone. And actually, fossil fuel companies have been planning on the opposite happening on, you know, continued uh, demand for energy that can't be met by supply. So they can go and extract all these uh, unconventional fuel reserves like, you know, we've heard about fracking Mm -hmm. and things like that. They're relying on kind of prices going up and they weren't really prepared for this. And as as we've said, you know, we mentioned the 80% figure, that's proven fossil fuel reserves need to be left in the ground. So that's Fossil fuel reserves that already count towards the stock market price of these fossil fuels. That are factored into their stock market valuations. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the technical, well, the risk here is that they become what's known as stranded assets. So they're something which you say, oh yeah, we're going to be able to use this. It's very valuable. And that's why our company is worth so much money. And then actually a few years down the line, somebody goes, no, you you can't burn that. You can't extract that, uh, Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, in which case suddenly the value of these companies changes quite dramatically. And actually, there are a lot of cases where fossil fuel companies are potentially facing legal challenges from regulatory bodies or their investors who feel that they've, they're being misled as to the value of these companies because they are so kind of, oh, no, don't worry, uh, nobody's going to do anything about climate change. Mm-hmm. And they're quite politically influential companies, of course. Do you know how much Cambridge... The University of Cambridge has invested in fossil fuels right now. We're not able to produce the exact figure because the university, um, fairly understandably, won't tell us. And the way the funds are managed indirectly, it's likely that the the exact figure does change fairly regularly. Uh, We do have estimates that, for instance, there's an estimate, I believe, from Fossil Free which put the figure about £350 million. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter whether the university has like £100 or £500 million invested in fossil fuels. It's the fact that it's Cambridge University. If they divest from fossil fuels, there'll be global media attention on it and it could uh, like catalyze other institutions to divest and political leaders and business leaders to advocate divestment. So um, to play devil's advocate for a moment, there is the argument that by divesting from fossil fuels, it reduces an institution like Cambridge's ability to, as a stakeholder in these companies, to play a role in trying to convince them to reduce, say, their share in their in their power in energy markets specifically. Like, for instance, there is the argument that, say, Cambridge could encourage companies like Shell to invest more in renewable energy. Do you guys see any merit in that sort of argument? I think there are kind of two counter arguments for that. The first is that for companies like Shell, BP, companies with a huge reliance on fossil fuel extraction, there's a question of whether the business model is simply too ingrained in fossil fuel extraction to change significantly. You know, if we do take action on climate change, yeah, sure, there'll be some scope for continued fossil fuel extraction, but it's going to be vastly reduced. And so there's no real scope for these companies to to grow in that case. And we've seen them kind of occasionally put some money into renewables or things like that, but not really on the scale that that is necessary. So I'd say for a start, you know, companies that are further removed from, from actual fossil fuel extraction, yeah, it might be appropriate to engage, ask them to change their business model. I think for some companies, it's, it's there's no way they're going to change. And also the other point I'd make is about the way most of our investments happen is through other funds indirectly. And so you end up several steps removed from these companies, which, you know, in the case of, it's hardly going to be that you're going to walk into the board meeting of one of these companies and go, hey, guys, have you thought about stopping your fossil fuel extraction? If you're several steps removed from that process, that becomes even harder. 
if you guys are successful and manage to, not only in Cambridge, but similar movements around the world, get more and more money from universities and other institutions out of fossil fuels, where do you see this money going? Do you think that they should instead invest in, say, solar energy or other uh, renewables? Uh, yeah, I think it's important to um, invest in um, renewables and other companies like that. I like divestment is our is our main aim, and we've seen it happen in Kings, uh, Warwick, Trinity Dublin recently, and it's it's a really growing movement. And I think divestment's the most important part. Reinvestment is is important too, but divestment's our main aim. So with the Cambridge divestment movement in particular, I, there was just an article in the, a Cambridge newspaper about your movement, which was quite exciting to read. And I was reading, though, one of the comments from a professor, Richard Prager, I think his name is. He's the head of the School of Technology, and he warned that, quote, divestment could damage our relationships across a whole sector, unquote, stating that his opposition to fossil fuel divestment was, quote, not just a desire to avoid alienating valued sponsors of our research, unquote, but because solutions can only be found by, quote, engaging constructively with the industries, unquote. There seems to be a real conflict of interest there that this is a university that produces groundbreaking work on why climate change is a problem. And then a professor saying, oh, no, but we can't actually act on this research because they're funding us. Like, is that just not like an outright admission of a conflict of interest? It does seem quite concerning, doesn't it? It does an impression that I did get when I left that discussion was I was thinking, oh, actually... I'm kind of worried that academics can be bought. I mean, I, I was really disappointed by these comments because there were a couple of couple of speakers from uh, departments uh, traditionally associated with close research links with fossil fuel industries who made comments like this. Um, there's there's no evidence globally that that divesting has had any effect on research funding, graduate employment, anything like that. And and to me, really, I don't see why. The university's investment policy should be the business of people providing research funding. That's a completely different area of the university. And it's actually really concerning that they feel perhaps they should have a stake in this. I, w I was just surprised to hear such a outright statement. I mean, usually when these conflicts of interest come about, they at least have the good sense to pretend, as the tobacco and sugar industries in the US have done for many, many years, and including the oil companies. I mean, like I, I believe what Shell has known, Shell was one of the first organizations, I think, in the US to know about these issues. But yeah, they like hid the research and hmm. funded scientists to say otherwise, as in, you know, sugar industry in the US has done similar yeah, things. We've seen this with tobacco um, as well, historically. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. So I don't think I've mentioned this yet. And I meant to, I also have been personally involved with divestment in that I founded my undergraduate's fossil fuel divestment campaign last year. Rollins has a much smaller endowment, of course, than a university like the University of Cambridge. Ours is around $350 million. And we had about around 1% or 2% of that invested in fossil fuels. And we got them to move $400,000 into a more sustainable green environmental index fund which was a start, but that was just new money invested. It wasn't in any way a divestment from fossil fuels. So that's kind of the state of our campaign. But one thing, one pushback that I got from our board of trustees and particularly the investment committee, which controls where the investments go, is that the board has a fiduciary duty to protect the endowment and to make it grow to ensure the survival 
of the institution. There is certainly an economic argument that these, you know, as we go into the future, these fossil fuels will only become a riskier and riskier investment. So if you want to ensure your endowment is not subject to these risks, it does make sense to divest from them. However, there's also a growing backlash that we've seen against this line of argument. And I'm talking in particular about the presidential elections that we've seen in the United States, for example. President Trump, although I think just now, as of yesterday, he's saying, oh, there might be a link between human activity and climate change. It's hard to keep track of his where he stands on any policy issue, or, or at least many of them. But I'd like to just read some things from his 100-day plan that he put out. And so the fifth point is, I will lift the restrictions on the production of $50 trillion worth of job-producing American energy reserves, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal, if such a thing exists. Um, six, you'll lift the Obama-Clinton roadblocks and allow vital energy infrastructure projects like the Keystone Pipeline to move forward. And seventh, he will cancel billions in payments to UN climate change programs and use the money to fix America's water and environmental infrastructure. So if Obviously, you know, I'm not sure if all these things can happen, but there is a Republican majority in our House and Senate. And these policies seem to be in line with that majority, which means there's relatively little political power, at least in terms of legislative power, that the American public has in terms of trying to stop these initiatives. If this goes forward, like if things carried out without – if things continued in the U.S., for example, without government influence – then these, I think it might very well be the economic argument still holds. But if the U.S. government and other governments around the world start artificially supporting the fossil fuel industry, I mean, they already subsidize the fossil fuel industry, but if they do it even more so than they're doing now, could that not reverse some of these economic arguments? What, what's the panel's take on that? Because I think that's a really important question to address, especially during these times. I mean, I'm pretty hopeful that Trump won't have such a devastating uh, influence on all that we've worked for, for what, like 22, 24 years. I also feel like, you know, fossil fuels and energy are just kind of one part of what has become like a really global movement about climate change. And um, there was a lot of, I was at the conference when Trump was elected and there was a lot of doom and gloom going on, but also there was a lot of, push towards just like continuing with what we've started and if the US is going to back out on its commitments which I'm not actually sure it can legally um although we'll see how Trump responds to that <laughs> so you know I'm not I'm not really sure who knows have any yeah clout but um yeah but you're right there could yeah. be like economic sanctions against the US maybe I don't yeah. know but like but also yeah. like other other governments uh would hope that they would push like step forward and step up and continue with this um, attempt to try and reduce our um, emissions to a level that might actually conserve the lives of everyone in the Pacific, for example. Mm -hmm. I know that with regards to fossil fuel subsidy reform, that's been a big talking point in the um, conference. I only know this because New Zealand has been spearheading it despite having a lot of uh, <laughs> fossil fuel subsidies um, back home, which is counterintuitive, but whatever let the government do its thing yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah in short I, I don't think um 
Trump single-handedly has the capacity to ruin everything that this mm-hmm. global movement has worked for. And especially I don't think you can underestimate just sheer force of will that the movement has, um, right? So now we've got businesses, schools, churches, all of these different types of institutions that are working together to divest and to push for like a better future. I don't think Trump alone will have the force to stop that. Oil and fossil fuels is a particularly like visceral example of climate change, right? And it's a very, it's a very like on the ground thing to fight against. And um, with the international attention for Standing Rock, um, which is almost unprecedented, uh, you know, the human rights aspect and the justice aspect, that's not something that we've seen often in the climate movement. It's only going to get more powerful. The voices are only going to get stronger. There's only going to be more people working towards this goal. And if anything, people might do it just to spite Trump. Yeah. Because <laughs> no one likes him <laughs> in the climate movement. In, in the climate movement, <laughs> the climate I was going to say, except for the millions of people who voted for him. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the world didn't. <laughs> yeah, the world. I think that is a fair point. I mean, it does sort of seem like Trump um, saw the film Mad Max and decided that should be like a goal instead of <laughs> yeah. That's Australia. That's not even yeah. America. <laughs> But who knows? Now he's saying maybe there is. I'm willing to consider a link between climate change and human-caused activity, but we need to protect our industries. It's absolutely bizarre to see Trump, you know, years after saying that climate change was a Chinese hoax, now seeing China telling the, you know, upcoming president of the United States that they didn't, like, invent this. It's kind of a real thing. It's very, it's surreal. (laughs) Many things about the U.S. are surreal right now in a kind of terrible way. Uh, But also, I just wanted to bring up one more point, and that's about jobs and industry. So one of the key things we talk about in the climate movement is just transitions. Mm -hmm. So um, making sure that the people who are working in these industries have have the resources and the jobs and the opportunities to transition out of these jobs. And this is a huge issue, right? Because a lot of the people who work on the front line of the industries are working class and they don't have the kind of like money to toss around and do whatever job they feel like. So um, I feel at a very base level, the kind of disenfranchisement with Trump's message will become pretty, pretty stark once it's obvious that there aren't actually jobs in the industry there. Mm-hmm. And the jobs yeah. that are in the industry, I, Naomi Klein, who is a Canadian journalist who writes a lot about these issues of climate change, calls the areas where we produce and extract energy and those areas where the jobs are, she calls them sacrifice zones because even though those workers are getting an income from that, they're putting their lives at risk in many ways. There, There's undoubtedly detrimental effects to their health by working those jobs. So it would be much better for these workers if we could transition to an economy that provided the clean energy jobs in the areas where there used to be, you know, coal. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think Australia is a really excellent example of watching this transition kind of like take place because you saw this huge boom in um, mining jobs, especially in Perth. And you have people who live and work in Perth, but they don't live and work in Perth. They live and work in the mines. They have like seven weeks on and one week off or something. I'm just making up that figure. I don't know if it's true. But um, the the hours are ridiculous and people do it to earn heaps of money and then they then they stop. But 
that was only good when there was a boom in the mining industry, right? Mm-hmm. So now you've got a huge group of like young people who um, have invested their futures in studying geology and now have nowhere to go because, I mean, Tony Abbott for a brief period had a love affair with coal that um, I think only Trump could rival. But, um, <laughs> uh, but then he also ate a raw onion. So, you know, um, there's so many issues of like, justice and jobs all tied up in this messy industry that I think if we're just talking about the financial investment side of it, we kind of miss a lot of what's going on on the ground. So yeah, I think, you know, people are the movement in this case. And I think divesting in universities, but also divesting people's, you know, personal livelihoods out of these industries is just as important. I agree. And I would say, um, the the false uh false impressions regarding uh this uh, this idea that you know fossil fuels are only on the way out because of climate change i mean it's also because renewable energy is increasingly cheap and fossil fuel sources really struggling to to compete with that and so unless economies make uh, these kind of transitions in a in a managed way in a forward looking way uh they do start to have these huge problems so you have these communities where suddenly there's no jobs this is also an explanation of why trump's loud announcements countries like india and china are just going you know what actually this is part of our plan for development now so yeah i mean it would be great if you could come along because it's probably going to be a bit of a pain if you don't but actually they've had enough of waiting really and so they're kind of go- the sounds, uh, particularly that I got from uh, COP twenty two in Marrakesh was that uh, the EU, uh, but particularly developing nations, have just decided, okay, well, America's going to do its own thing for a few years, but we're just going to get on with this now. Yeah, especially the human costs that we've witnessed in places like China, which I think you could also call sacrifice zones, where all the factories have moved, and now they have massive smog problems, which kills hundreds of thousands of people a year, according to some studies. I think part of it is that inevitably smaller or developing countries see sort of a natural benefit to investing in sort of an up-and-coming industry. Like, I mean, back home in America, there was a huge scandal in America because of Solyndra, which was like one company that didn't do well. Can you explain the Solyndra thing a little bit? For- well, from what I remember, it was um, Obama, I think, mm-hmm. um, part of the 2009 stimulus bill. I think he invested... It was like one of his first policies, if I remember. Yeah, to, to invest in yeah. a lot of green jobs, because the idea was if you're going to try and stimulate the US economy, in the long run, investing in green jobs is probably a good idea. And I think one company didn't do well for whatever reason. I'm sure there are lots of other tiny details, but the mm-hmm. gist of it is that people used this one example of maybe a bad investment to suggest that the entire industry is a bad idea, which I think is completely ridiculous. I mean, since then, I've lived in Scotland and I see that, you know, Scotland has plenty of fossil fuels to extract, although most of those companies are not owned by Scottish people or the Mm -hmm. Scottish government or anything. But they see a natural benefit in looking at their natural resources. They've got, for instance, tides. I mean, I think 25% of the Scottish energy market is going to be Funded, it was going to be supplied by tithes. I mean, this sort of stuff is way more important and way more innovative than anything that fossil fuel companies at the moment can do. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, we're also in the weird situation now in, in the UK where we actually pay fossil fuel companies to extract fuel from the North Sea rather really? than tax them. Yeah, the subsidies now where the taxes, and that's obviously purely to maintain the jobs in those industries artificially because there's been no consistent plan of, of how we, you know, uh, provide the training 
and the jobs of these people to change industries. Mm -hmm. I'd like to end with the question of what advocacy tactics have you all used in your different experiences with advocating for the environment and advocating for fossil fuel divestment. And then the second part of that question is how can people who are listening get involved with either your campaign here in Cambridge or just in general, how do you join and support this movement? With Zero Carbon Society, we've um, we've tried to work through official channels as, as much as we can through like the university's administration system. Last year, we, we made a, a 74-page report, uh, which like, comprehensively referenced on why we think that the university should divest. So um, if anyone wants to um, have a look at that, then that's uh, up online on our website. And we have a, a Facebook page, which you should all go and like. And there are plenty of similar movements around the world. So if anyone's at a university, there's almost certainly going to be a fossil fuel divestment. And if there isn't, you could consider starting one. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the time, I think it's just connecting climate change to things that people care about. Climate change has the ability to kind of turn people off because it seems like this big overarching system that you can't really control. But these kinds of smaller movements, which are intensely important, but much more easy to grapple with, like divesting your university's um, funds from fossil fuels or cleaning up a river that's really important to you. These kinds of small campaigns are really good to capture people almost and bring it home because climate change affects literally everything you know and love. So by being able to articulate that in a, in a way that speaks to people, it means you'll kind of get them on board more so than if you just talk about emissions reductions because no one wants to listen to talk about emissions reductions except mm -hmm. those who study it <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i mean it's about conceptualizing the earth as something that we live with not just extract out of Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us or send us ideas about future episodes. We also would love if you took a few seconds to rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe and join us again next week where we'll be talking about human rights in the Syrian refugee crisis. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations.